0: Oh, grab your Bibles this morning and open to Acts. And uh, we'll be picking it up in uh, chapter 6, right from where we sort of left off last week. Now, last week I had done like a a whole survey of really um, the beginning of Stephen's uh, problems, if you want to look at it that way, the beginning of um, him being um, brought before the council and uh, what that led to, and then sort of a, a very brief kind of survey of what was in his speech and then the result of that and how um, God is working through all of the the choices and decisions in our lives, but also um, he's he's exercising his choice. And this is good news for us. This is not bad news. And um, I want you to, um, real quickly, uh, if you can rewind this far, uh, um, you you sometimes would say uh, nursery rhymes and... um, and uh, you didn't actually understand the content of the rhyme and uh, what, the, what, the, what the message behind it was until maybe sometime later. Like, ring around the rosies. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but this is like actually a really kind of, yeah, very dark uh, nursery rhyme. And you would say it and then uh, come to find out it's about like the the plague and like not, not good stuff. And uh, sometimes um, we, we don't understand or we don't grasp fully the content of what it is that we... Um, that we say, or what we purport to believe in, and um, and I think this is um, pretty evident in something that I know that you will all agree with. And so I want to um, first um, set the set the, the foundation and the framework for what we'll um, look at with what Stephen says in his speech by asking you: Do you all believe that um, what, what we know as the Lord's Prayer is a good prayer? Do you do you believe that? Is the prayer, of the Lord's prayer is a good prayer? Okay. Yes. And you would say it and and you would recite everything in it and give a hearty yes and amen to everything in the Lord's prayer. Yes? Okay. So I, I, I don't think that I get any pushback on that and that's good. So uh, I, I would prefer to pr- um, call it this morning the prayer of the disciples. It is shown and taught to us uh, by by Jesus. So that's why we call it the Lord's Prayer. But he gives it to the disciples because they say, teach us how to pray, right? And so he gives them this. And so this morning, I just want you to recite with me. I've changed just a a few of the languages so that we can all be on the same page about what it says. Are you with me? Okay. So in your heartiest, I believe it voice, here we go. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed Okay, so I put the parenthetical, yours is the kingdom power and the glory, because I think that's a good refrain. Uh, It's not in the original that uh, Jesus gave to the disciples, but it's a good thing. And um, so I left it there. Now, what I want to do now is unpack for you what you just said that you believe in and a hearty amen to, so that you can understand what it is that Jesus gave the disciples that they should pray for and what they should believe in. Are you with me? You don't have to read this. I'm just going to give it to you. Our Father who is in heaven, so essentially here, um, Jesus is telling the disciples to approach God in a specific way and acknowledge where it is that this God is. So he says, highest God in the heavenly places, we approach you as your children, right? We're calling him Father, and yet he, he is so high and glorious and in places we cannot fathom and imagine, and yet we get to approach him as our, uh, his children with respect and trust and dependence. Just in the first line, our Father who is in heaven, okay? Now... God, great and glorious is your powerful name, the name that you have given yourself, Yahweh, I am. That means the God who is, the God who was, the God who will be. It is I am who I am, I will be who I will be. He is transcendent in that way. Your name is above all. It is you, uh, it is who you are. His name is who he is. And we ask that you would increase in renown and respect among us that you receive the glory and honor you are due. That's the, the idea of hallowing something, right? It's, it's, it's glorious, it's respected, it's, it's, it's raised in honor. We're asking, we're inviting God, we're pleading with him to make it more so. Hallow your name further so that it can receive the glory, honor, and respect that it is due. Grow your kingdom here. Increase your kingdom in us and through us. Your, your kingdom come. The, the kingdom of heaven should come here And it it happens to do that in us and through us. Let your will be done, God. We submit ourselves so that your plans and your purposes can be accomplished in us and through us. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Make earth increasingly like heaven in our living. Let your will, glory, power, and presence be among us as a reflection of heaven where they are already Full, right? The the place where God's presence is in heaven, all of his power and his glory and honor and his will, all this is executed perfectly. We're asking for that to be true here on earth, and that's done in us and through us and among us. So make earth increasingly like heaven. We trust you for all that we need for today. Right? We we are dependent on you, God. You are the source of all things, you provide all things. Not just for us who are asking for it, but you you feed even those who don't ask, right? For all mankind. And our today, even in itself, is sustained by your hand. And each day, we trust whatever it is that you give as our daily provision. All in, give us today our daily bread. We ask for your grace for our sins. And we also reconcile with one another. This is the one that sort of maybe trips us up sometimes. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Does that mean we won't be forgiven if we don't forgive? Essentially, I think we can boil it down to this. God, we need your grace for our sins and help as we fail to fulfill the one thing you've asked us to do, which is to love you, God, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love others. The first and greatest commandment, all encapsulated there, right? So we ask for your help for that. Forgive us for not living up to that and help us to reconcile with one another in the same way. Show them love and respect. Lead us away from temptation. Make your will clear to us. Help us hear your voice and obey your word so we can follow your ways and your plans and avoid falling into sin. Deliver us not just from evil, but from the evil one. This is an important request. It's it's only by your power, by your hand, that we are freed from Satan and our sins in the grave. We're we're pleading for him to free us from the the tyranny of the slavery of what we've been uh, of where we are. Deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever, eternally. Past, present, future, forever and ever. Right? Amen. So be it. Let it be so. There it is. The Lord's prayer. Okay. Now, much like the nursery rhyme, like, you know, ring around the rosies, if you don't say the Lord's Prayer, thinking all those things, you're you're not. A, it's not a problem, but have you ever considered what it is that you're actually saying, what you're actually declaring, what you're actually advocating? What you need in the Lord's Prayer, and all of those things point to a God that you're advocating to do something that we generally resist Him and pretend that He cannot do, which is to intervene in your life and to control your circumstances and to bring about His purposes and to make his name even greater than it already is. And all of these things are an invitation asking God to intervene. And yet we want to say, but God, leave me free to do whatever I want. And yet we know if God leaves us free to do whatever we want, we're going to be hopelessly lost. That's why we pray for him to to please deliver us. Yes? And so the content of the prayer is very important. Have you considered what prayer even is? It's it's an expression of dependence. I'm, I'm asking you because I can't do this for myself. You're inviting God and and, and expressing your total need to Him so that without God's responsiveness to prayer, it's a a futile exercise. It's a silly thing to even pray if you don't believe that He can respond or that He will respond or that He should respond. That's really important because it has everything to do with what your faith is in and how you perceive God has everything to do with how your faith operates. And when I say faith, I, I use that word very generically and, and categorically this morning because I think um, we, 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 we place our faith in the wrong places because, because specifically we limit our understanding of who God is and we limit who God is and we wanna put him in a box and we stick him in this little picture frame, right? And what happens this morning in the testimony of Stephen is he paints this grand narrative picture about a God who does not fit within the picture frame. And how he exceeds all expectations. And not only is he the one that um, that doesn't fit inside the picture frame, but he's the one that has designed the picture. And he's the one that's painting the picture. And yet he's doing it through the hand, if you will, of men. And uh, I, I tried to uh, express this last week. Sometime my, my uh, me telling you what's in my brain never is probably a good idea, but then also trying to explain the, the, the word picture of it is, is even less so. So I remind you of this, um, this famous painting of uh, Norman Rockwell, and he's doing a self-portrait, and I, I've, uh, I've doubled it so that now Norman Rockwell is painting a picture of Norman Rockwell painting a picture of a picture, okay? So you have a picture within a picture, and we look at that and we go, that's neat. That's cool, and uh, this is what's happening in the narrative, but I'm gonna add one more thing, because I said, even though you see the picture and you see what's happening, what we actually see is Stephen telling the story that was told to him about what the Holy Spirit is doing through the picture that's painting the picture of who God is. And the hand that you perceive that had to, the picture didn't just come to be, by Norman Walkwell creating it. You, you can, you see a picture, you go, oh, that's neat, that's cool. But um, the picture didn't paint itself. The, the paintbrush didn't paint it. And, and so somebody had to create this piece of art. You see it. And so this morning, I want you to understand that um, Stephen's life itself is a testimony about how God works in the grand narrative of humanity. And then his testimony is a recap of the grand narrative of humanity, of redemption. And then the whole story of Acts, is the story of the grand narrative of redemption. And when we lose the grand narrative, we get focused on the detail, and we kind of pick apart, and we grab the one part that we need, or we think we need for today, and we place our faith in that thing. And that's just to confine God into the box where, where I, I can manage him. I know what I get in return for what I put in. And the fact of the matter is, more often than not, we, we, we think that, like, this, this coin of faith, I drop the coin of faith in, and I receive from that eternal life, because that's what's been, been guaranteed to me, and um, that, that's not the picture that God's drawing. And, and more often than not, we, we don't actually drop the, the faithfulness coin. We, we drop the wrong coin. We're not actually more on a on a uh, on the on the whole. You want to look at the whole picture? How often are you doing the right thing? I tried to point this out last week. Very very rarely do we have our, our faithfulness uh, as a perfect record. I would not want to point to my record of doing good and right and being faithful to all that God's asked me to do as the reason why he saved me, right? As the reason why he should respond faithfully to me. So it's not our faithfulness that begets his faithfulness. So there's something else that you you have to be putting your faithfulness in, and that's him. So it's, it's the reverse of what you think, Um, well, I'm putting my faithfulness in my doing and then he'll respond to me. And that's not the picture that's being painted. So before we get to the text this morning, let me pray for our time together and um, we'll see what the Lord would speak to us through his word this morning. Father, I pray that you would help us and help me. That we would um, behold you truly this morning, not in um, a version of you that we create in our minds, not in a limited way, that we want to have a God that we manage and that we can control. God, that we would see um, all that you've done in the past and what you're doing now, what you promised to do. Father, that that might give rise to faith in our hearts. So I ask that you would speak now through your word. Uh, Just pray that you keep my lips from air. Um, Bind distractions from our hearts and our minds this morning. Um, give us humility to receive what it is that you'd speak in your truth this morning. God, we ask you would do this for us by giving us the ears to hear your voice in your word. We can see who you truly are, even a small glimpse of it, with spiritual eyes and hearts of flesh, to receive what you would want to do. We love you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll start with the narrative this morning. My hope is to get through a good chunk of it so that we can pick it up next week um, at the end of um, 53. But even if we don't get all the way through the end part of that, um, what you need to check with is the story of, of Stephen and what he's, why he's telling the story, who he's highlighting, why he's highlighting it. And I want you to ask the kinds of questions like, is this a God who's limited to a certain place? And is this a God who's limited to a certain time? Is this a God who only responds to faithfulness? Is this a God who is is, is limited in any capacity? Because you've not come to a God who is only faithful as far as you are faithful. And we have a God who is a promise maker and a promise keeper. So the question is, what is, what is the promise this morning? And so... Well, um, if you've uh, just to catch up on the narrative, um, Stephen remember is a Hellenistic Jew. He's appointed to this. Uh this vocation inside the church, of ministering to the tables. He's gone out in to the world, and he's doing great signs and wonders. It happens in the synagogue of the freedmen, and because of his testimony, because of um, what it is that he's saying, he receives a lot of pushback, and there's some debates that are happening, and it says that the content of what it is that Stephen is speaking is is so wise and so spirit-filled that no one is even able to answer him. We find that in verse 10 of chapter 6. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So what do you do when you don't have an answer? Well, they panic, right? They secretly instigate men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. There's the first two. They say they're they're going to make some false accusations and they fall in four different categories. And so the first is Moses and God. So then they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and they seized him and they brought him before the council and they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words, listen, against this holy place and against the law. Moses, God, this holy place and against the law. There's four places he's accused of blaspheming. We've heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth, excuse me, Nazareth will destroy this place. He'll change the customs that Moses delivered to us and gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw his face was like that of it uh, was like the face of an angel. I said we'd get to that, but I really meant next week. So come back for the explanation. <laughs> You're welcome. Okay, so uh, it's it's really good explanation. I promise. Okay, so and the high priest said, "Are these things so?" So now Stephen's going to give his apologetic. Um, in, in First Peter, uh, we, we we're told that um, we should always uh, be prepared. We should always be ready to give a reason for the faith and the hope that we have, right? And, and that word for the reason is apologia, which is the word we use to say apologetics or an argument for God. And that's exactly what Stephen's going to give. And he, what he's going to do is going to tell a story about these people responding directly to the accusation that they give him. The, the, four, the four blasphemies he's been accused of, he's going to highlight how this God is not... Um, presented in the way that they believe that he is presented. And so he's going to start with Abraham. So here he goes. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The glory of God appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and he lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land which you are now living. If you're not um, totally versed in the story of Abraham, that's fine. Uh, I'll give you the highlights uh, that you need to know. The first thing that he points out is that the guy that they credit to receiving the first promise, the one that they call their father, importantly, because he's the, the one who the original covenant was made with, Abraham, right? He was in Mesopotamia before he lived, even in this intermediate place of Haran, before he moved finally into the place that they believe The place where God's presence is, which is in the Holy Land, Jerusalem, where the temple is. And in their minds, this is the only place where God could possibly be. And so remember, they're accusing Stephen of uh, of blaspheming this holy place. The, the place where God's presence is, and He's reminding them that it didn't start here. And before Abraham knew anything of who God was, He's living in a land of Ur of the Chaldees, which is, was a place that was like just idol worship. That's all he knew. And so God calls him out of that. He makes him a promise. He says, "I'm going to show you a land, but leave your leave your kin in your country." I told him to leave two things: leave your family and leave your home. And so, uh, if, again, if you're not familiar with the story. Um, His first obedience was not full obedience. Abraham only moved out of, with his father and with Lot, out of um, Ur, and he stops in this intermediate place of Haran. And then it says, it was only after his father died that he actually goes out from Haran. And after his father died, listen, look at, um, it's in verse 4. It says, God removed him from there into this land, which you are now living. So even though... uh, Abraham made some choices in the middle of that. We see that God was moving along this promise that he had made. He said, I'm going to give you a land. Now leave and go to the land. I'll show it to you when you get there. So he's supposed to just go in faith. Here's a promise I'm giving you. Abraham, go. And so he kind of goes, but he doesn't go all the way. He doesn't go to the land he's supposed to be in. And yet God, even through that choice that Abraham's making, um, removes him out of it, moves him on. And he does it by the fact that his father died. He had nothing left to stick in the land for. There was no, there was no reason to stay anymore. So finally, he moves out and he moves on. But he takes Lot with him. Another fateful decision, if you want to say. Because if again, if if you track with the rest of the story of Abram, Lot becomes a, perver- a proverbial thorn in Abram's side, and he he ultimately is um, the reason why. Um, So so, uh, uh, there's some some strife between Abram and Lot. Uh, They choose different ways. God is with Abram. He blesses Abraham's uh, land. But uh, Lot ends up living towards Sodom and Gomorrah, if you know that story, right? And eventually, uh, Lot gets carried off uh, by—he gets captured. Abram goes and rescues him with men. And on the way back, uh, he meets Melchizedek, who is the first instance of uh, this this pre-incarnate Christ. Jesus before Jesus was Jesus in the flesh. And so that's Abram's interaction. But all that's brought about by this first promise. Um, Track with me, look at verse five. Yet he gave him, even though he promised it, he gave him no inheritance, not even a foot's length, but he promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him. Though he had no child, God spoke to this effect. So here's what God promised him, that to his offspring, they would possess it, but his offspring would be sojourners in the land belonging to others who would enslave them and inflict them for 400 years. So I said last week, um, you think that you need the why. Because if you had the why, that somehow that would make it worth it. And I said, the problem is you're so transactional that even with the why, you'd probably decide it wasn't worth it. And here's a case of that. If I said to you, hey, your your kids are going to be enslaved for 400 years, but eventually they're going to have a place to live, you might go, that sounds like a long time to have my people enslaved. And you might want to back out of that deal. Do you see that? And even though that was the case, God promised it to him. He didn't give it to him, but he did tell him for 400 years, they're going to be foreigners in this land and they're going to be subjected to slavery. But he makes a promise even in addition to that in verse 7. But I will judge that nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they will come out and they will worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. So importantly, I want you to notice that God makes a promise to Abram. Doesn't ask him for anything in return. uh, and, and uh, it's in effect, and um, it was only after that that he asked for something from Abraham to show that they are in covenant, which is the circumcision. That becomes important later. So Abraham became the father of Isaac, and he circumcised him on the eighth day, showing that he was a child of promise, a child of promise. This becomes an important theme now because um, Abraham's the first one that's chosen, and uh, it says that he leaves the land with his father. So now, if you think about it, Abraham's actually a chosen son. He's a, he's a chosen child through which the promise is going to come. And this wasn't the first time that there was, there was a promise that, that was going to come. And This is all the way back into Genesis, really at the beginning, where the fall happens and the garden collapses and paradise is lost, and the important thing that was lost is the presence of God. And this is the story that God's been telling. How is he going to reconcile that problem? How does God get back to be with his people? He's going to do it through a promised seed, a promised seed. So Abraham is the first promise receiver of that seed and he passes it on to his son Isaac. Isaac was circumcised on the eighth day. Isaac um, became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. He jumps over some important stories. Isaac did not have uh, a straight line kind of life. Jacob did not have a straight line kind of life. Jacob was also a chosen son. Jacob was the younger son. Jacob was Esau's Younger son, remember he he stole the birthright, and uh, from Esau, and um, but he becomes the carrier of the promise, and he calls them the father uh, Jacob, who's the father of the twelve patriarchs. These are the guys that they now credit. When I say they, this is the Sanhedrin and the Jews, the faithful Jews, um, not believing in Christ, who they credit with um, being the only purveyors of the promise. Then he says the patriarchs, excuse me, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but. God was with him. Um, so even though uh, Jacob was uh, a chosen son, we don't, we don't uh, get the, we're not privy to that story here in Stephen's testimony. He jumps now to Joseph, who's also not the oldest son. And if you know the story at all of Joseph, you would not call that a straight-line story of A to B, of cause and effect, of promise to receiving the promise, right? And he's going to go through some of those details. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, those are the older brothers, sell him into Egypt. But God was with him. Okay. Stephen is masterful in this. This is why this is like probably the longest recorded sermon and there's so much going on here. He's moving several pieces along the chessboard at the same time. He's moving the promise of the seed but he's also pointing out the fact that God was never confined to one place and he was never confined to a single promise or to a single person. He's showing that God is the one that's, that's moving all of the pieces. And he's showing that it's not within the parameters of the game that the Jews thought they were, they were playing, if you want to say it that way, right? So J- Joseph, even though he sold into Egypt and into slavery, God was with him and he rescued him out of his afflictions. Who rescued Joseph out of his affliction? God did, and he gave him favor and he gave him wisdom before Pharaoh. He, he sort of jumps over the part where he's in slavery and then he's in prison for a while if you know the story of Joseph. If you don't, it, it's, it's, a, it's a long and twisted tale. <laughs> and uh, and it's, it's so good to see that even in the dark places and even in the hard times, the promise still stands and that God is faithful to what it is that he says he's going to do. Joseph's never lost, even at times where it was dark. So he, he's, in, he's in jail for a while, but finally he, um, he gives him favor and he gives him wisdom before Pharaoh. Pharaoh, the guy in charge, God gives him favor, it says. It doesn't, it's not something that Joseph earned for himself. And he made him ruler over Egypt and over all of his household. Joseph had risen to basically second in command only to Pharaoh and over all of the matters there. And now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and a great affliction. And our fathers could find no food in the land of promise, in the land where it was supposed to be where God was. Suddenly there's no food and they have to leave. Well, That that becomes a problem for them. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. That'll become important later on. The first visit. And it was only on the second visit that Joseph made himself known to his brothers. So they come. The first time, Joseph recognizes all his brothers. They don't recognize him. They'd long since considered him dead. And uh, he sends them on their way with a bunch of grain. And uh, it was was only when they come back, because they need resupplied, that he reveals himself to them. Uh, He sent out... Um, excuse me, on on the second visit Joseph made himself known to his brothers and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and he summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt. So Jacob left the promised land, goes into Egypt now with his son Joseph, and he died along with all of our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem. And he was laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. Um, lest I have to go all the way back to the story of Abraham. He had bought a, a, a grave only to bury his wife in from the people that lived there. That was the only possession he had actually in the promised land was, was a grave. And so um, they, they lay him to rest there. But as the time of promise drew near, that verse 17 is hearkening back to the promise where God said to Abraham that you're, you're, your, your children will be in, enslaved for 400 years. So, as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and they multiplied in Egypt. So even though they're not in the land and even though they're under tyranny, God still has favor on them. They're increasing and multiplying in Egypt. Until there arose in Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. And he dealt shrewdly with our race and he forced our fathers to expose their infants so they would not be kept alive. And suddenly we're in the book of Exodus and all that happens with that. And at this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. um, The idea being communicated there is that Moses, again, was was a chosen son. He was uh, among those babies that were supposed to be killed. Remember, there were so many babies in the land, they were supposed to kill all the Israelite babies. And remember, the the midwives were supposed to uh, expose them and leave them out. And so, but God had favor and says, um, he, he, uh, he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed... Pharaoh's daughter adopted him. And if you remember how that happened, he was placed in this little ark, right, on the river Nile. And he floats down and Pharaoh's daughter finds him. And he's plucked out, if you will, drawn out of the river. And so um, he's brought up for three months in his father's house. And when both father's to adopt him, brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in word and deed. But when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers. The children of Israel. It's showing them now in contrast to the rest of um, the family of Israel. And in the book of Exodus is the time, um, the first time he addresses Pharaoh, he, he says, uh, let, let go of Israel, my son, my firstborn son. And he so now he's referring to the whole nation of promise, not just one family, not just Abraham, not just his 12 sons, but all of Israel is called his son. So here we are, the chosen son as a people. So He's 40 years old. It came to his heart to visit his brother, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and he avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that he was giving them salvation by his hand. That's really important. Um, Moses wanted to do the right thing in the wrong way. Um, and if you rewind to the story of um, Joseph, he wanted to do the right thing that God had called him to, but he had done it in the wrong way. When he uh, had this dream that uh, he was going to be great and all of his family would serve him, he immediately announced that to his family. And he said, I'm going to be great and all of you are going to bow down to me, which never goes well, right? Especially when you're the youngest son and already clearly favored by your father. And so, uh, so he messes up. And if you just rewind through the story of... Um, Everybody that's been listed so far, there's always a moment where they take matters into their own hands. Abraham does the same thing. Abraham's promised a child, and he doesn't quite understand how that's going to happen, and so he decides to have a child not with his wife, but with his concubine. And that presents Ishmael, who's Ishmael's actually the firstborn son. And Ishmael's not the son who carries the promise. And so you see again, the chosen son, the chosen promise is, is a line that's being happened. And it always, um, it's always in spite of the fact that man tries to get his hands around actualizing the promise that God gives. Do you see this? Okay, so the theme is repeating. So again, it's masterful what what Stephen's doing in making his case here. So Moses decides he's going to free uh, his brothers by his hand, but he can't. They did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling, and he tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? Again, uh, the first time, his bro- the brothers visit Joseph in Egypt. Remember, they don't recognize him, but it's on the second visit that he recognizes him. This time, Moses tries to free his brothers, and they don't, quote-unquote, recognize him as the deliverer. And so, it goes poorly. He says, who, who are you? The man who is wronging his neighbor thrust him aside. Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill us as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled. He became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. So, he, he's back, and... Midian now. And now when they, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. Again, is, is Moses in Jerusalem? No. Is he in the promised land at all? No, he's in the wilderness. And this is where God appears to him in a flame in a bush. When Moses saw it, he's amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, then came the voice of the Lord. I am the Lord, God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Moses trembled. He did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing Is holy ground. Is it holy ground because it was the promised land? No. Is it holy ground because nobody walked on it before? No. Why is it holy ground? Because God's there. Because this is where the presence of the Lord is. And God announces himself, I have surely seen the affliction of the people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. I've come down to deliver them. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt. You see both things there that God says, I, I, I've seen what's happening. I'm going to come deliver them. I'm sending you to deliver them. It's it's the actions of Moses that are actualizing what it is that God's doing, and so you see, not that um, not that it's 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 it's, it's um, hand alone, but it's God's hand through Moses' actions and through his obedience. And Moses, whom they had rejected, when? The first time, saying, Who made you ruler and judge? This man God sent, both ruler and redeemer, by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, this man being now Moses, led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea in the wilderness for 40 years. And so if you want to just track through the plagues, right? And then the massive exodus and then being trapped at the Red Sea. All of this... Is God's um, God's doing. All of it is, is uh, God's hand bringing about all of these things. This is the one who was in the congregation of the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. So he wasn't just the angel who was in the burning bush. He's also the angel who was in the congregation in the wilderness. Our fathers refused to obey him, and they thrust him aside. So he's saying Moses, even though he was the chosen one, and he was the deliverer, and he was the ruler and judge, the, that... Um, they rejected him, just like they had rejected Joseph, right? And just like they had rejected all those that God had brought um, before them to rule over them. Our, our fathers refused to obey him, and they thrust him aside, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Now, stop for a second in this story. This, this bears a little bit of time for us. In the story of the Exodus, God's delivered the whole nation by incredible signs and wonders, right? You got the ten plagues, you got the Red Sea. He's provided them with manna and and and, uh, and quail. I mean, the whole thing is just like astounding. And then um, God says He's going to show up. Remember, and He's prepare yourself. And this is where the law is given at Mount Sinai. And uh, while Moses is up on the mountain receiving the law, manifestation. The top of the mountain's on fire. Remember, great thunder. Everybody's terrified for their lives. They don't want God to speak anymore. And they decide, instead of that, make us gods who, we, who, we can, who we're familiar with, that we like, that we can manage. This is what they implore Aaron to do, if you forgot the Exodus story. Even though all of this incredibleness has happened, they have all of this testimony of who God is and what he can do and who he will be for them. They decide instead we want a God we can manage. And so they ask him to make gods of gold, right? So Aaron complies, right? Uh, um, They implore him um, to, uh, to make gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And they made a calf in those days, and they offered a sacrifice to the idols, and they were rejoicing in the works, listen, of who? Of their hands, it says. They're so pleased with the God that they've made. Remember, Moses comes down, and he sees all the revelry, and he's just devastated, and he, what he does do? He breaks the law. He, he breaks the law that God had given him. God turned away, and he gave them over to worship the hosts of heaven. Now, um, what Stephen does is he jumps over all of the reconciliation that happens after that and how God, um, how Moses goes and he intercedes for the people. And, um, but, but eventually, essentially, he's saying this, look, like, you, you turned away and then he gave them over to worship false gods, essentially. And so he's going to show how that's the case. And uh, so we asked through the prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness of the house of Israel? Part of... Um, God saying, I'm going to come. My presence will be with you. He gives them the temple and the tabernacle. And part of that is the sacrifices. But in the wilderness, they don't have, they don't have all the sacrifices, do they? And so he's saying, did you, did you offer to me sacrifices when you were 40 years in the wilderness? And the answer is, is no. So you, you took up instead the tent of Moloch and the star of the god of Raphon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. So they had... Um, They had given over uh, worship of the true God to these false gods. We'll talk about those next week. And our fathers had the tent of of witness in the wilderness just as he spoke to Moses who directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. So now he's going to turn his attention to the other blasphemy. So they talked about, remember, Moses, God, this holy place, and the law. So this holy place also being the temple. But he said, look, was the temple there in the wilderness? No. Our fathers had the tent of witness. uh, And it was... Moses, who, who, uh, who was directed to make it, and they put it up wherever they were at. Verse 45, our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they deposed the nations. So the tent of, wilderness, or tent of witness didn't just stay in the wilderness. It went with them as they deposed the nations. Then God drove out um, before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God. David was not the original chosen son. He's the son of Jesse. He wasn't wasn't the guy that uh, stood head and shoulders above everybody else. Do you you know this? And so he again is, uh, David represents another chosen son of which would carry the promise. He found favor in the sight of God and he was asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it wasn't David who actually finds the dwelling place, if you want to say it that way. It was Solomon who built the house for him. Now, after all that, recounting the story, recounting. The different carriers of the promise, and how God had worked through all of the failures and uh, rejections of His chosen uh, deliverers and His people, He says this: yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, and nor is He contained in the images that were made by the um, by the hands of the Israelites in in uh, in the wilderness." Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool what kind of house will you build for me says the lord or what is the place of my rest instead of affirming their their vision of who god is god is the one who resides in the holy place he's the one that's confined to this little room that we've made for him because he's called it holy is that really the place of my rest did not my hand make all these things and then the final, word about you stiff necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. Listen to that very carefully. They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, whom you received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So he points out all of the things that they said he's blasphemed. It was really them who blasphemed. And they've done it by holding it and reforming it into the ways that they want to keep it instead of the ways that it was predicted to come. And it was never, these things were never the point in and of themselves. Um, and that's, uh, that's the story that's, that's being told. Where, where is God in all this? God is always being pictured as the one who's the initiator. God is always the one who's coming. God is the one who's choosing. God's not just in one land or another land. He's not just in the tent and not just in the tabernacle. He's wherever he decides to make his name known. And who's the one that's helping the people forward? Who's the one that's delivering the people? It's not their ideas and their plans and their might. It's God who shows up. It's God who preserves. It's God who is the deliverer. But he cannot dwell in the place where you try to confine him. So essentially what he's presenting is that God has always asked and invited us, human beings, into relationship and in faith. And the question was, well, what is your faith in then? Is, is your faith in your um, ability to know what place I'm in? I've called you to a place and that's the only place I will be. And if you can't get to that place, you don't show up in that place, then you can't be with me. That, that can't be the case because God shows up where Abraham wasn't and tells him where to go. And he's with him all along the way in all of his trials and all of his bad choices. And the same story repeats over and over. So it can't possibly be the place. Well, maybe it's just only in certain circumstances when we're faithful to God. Maybe when we, when we do the right things, we respond the right way. Then it's in those circumstances where, where we have a king that we put over ourselves. And we find out that's not true. Because over and over, God shows up. God was with him in Egypt. God is with him in prison. God was with the people in slavery. He sees their plight. He decides to deliver them. So we find out that it's not confined to a circumstance. Well, maybe it's about my choice or my ability. We find out that's not the case because we, all throughout the story, they're making wrong, bad choices and deciding to do things for themselves. Well, maybe it's about the law that came down, and it's a set of rules so that we could finally make God happy, and then he would be among us. And we find that even as before the law even arrives, right? They're building a golden calf. So it's not about the law. None of these things in and of themselves are, are the reality. And so the, the whole point is you, you've been fixated on the things that were always pointing to the promise. It's always a promise. So what is a promise in and of itself? But a delaying of the substance. It's a delaying of the substance. Some, the substance will come. That's what a promise is. It says that the substance will come later. So, so what is the substance? God is not just the promise maker and the promise keeper, but he is himself the promise. That is, that is what we're supposed to have our faith in. I, I, um, I had this scripture for you last week, and uh, I want to walk you through it again to major on the last part of it. This is Ephesians 1, and it says this starting in 4. That even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, God had a plan already laid in place. It's already laid down. So it doesn't, there's nothing you can do to derail it. So don't let that empower you to sin, but let that encourage you away from it. But listen, there's nothing you can do to derail the plan of God. It's going to happen. Before the foundation of the world, it's laid that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he does this. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Now, he does this to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the blood In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Now, here's the part I want to just stop on for a second. He lavished what? His grace upon us and his wisdom and his insight. He he knows exactly what's going to happen. He knows the choices that are going to be made. In fact, at the beginning of Exodus, we find out that Pharaoh, the guy that it says, the one who didn't remember Joseph, was raised up specifically for the purpose of showing God's might and power in delivering his people. So even the, the, the guy that doesn't seem to fall into the story at all, somebody that doesn't love God, doesn't care, doesn't care about the promise, none of that falls into the purview of Pharaoh, and yet it says that God has raised him up for the specific purpose that he had already laid out. right? So in all his wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will. What is the mystery of his will? According to his purposes that he set forth in Christ, that as a plan for the fullness of time, what is he doing? He's uniting things. Uniting is, is, a, is, is a relational word. He's reconciling, if you want to say it that way. He's bringing things that were separated back together. That the presence that was lost in the garden, that's been the story the whole time. How will God's presence come back to be with his people? And there's your answer. The plan for the fullness of time was to unite all things in him, in him being Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. The things in heaven where God's presence is fully Right? Remember, Lord's Prayer, God, in heaven, bring it to earth. Why do we want that? Because it reconciles us on earth to, to the place of heaven where God's presence is. So he's doing that through a person, through a promise, through a seed. And that's why Stephen tracks this whole story. He said, you guys got lost in the details thinking that was the picture. And you, you put the frame on it, and you hung it on the wall, and you worship the picture. Well, God was always outside of the picture. He was always pointing towards a bigger story. And the bigger story arrived, and you missed it. Just like you rejected all the deliverers and all the judges and all the rulers before you, you did it again. Jesus showed up, and you missed the story because you were too fixated on him and being on the canvas. Okay. Now, this comes out, again, in a different way, explained through the words of Paul in Galatians 3. So he says, talking about promises, let me, he says, let me give you a human example. You, you guys can all understand this. This is Paul speaking this. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, a covenant is just a binding pact, a promise, right? No one can annul it or add to it once it's been ratified. So, so it can't be changed. So now I just want you to think for a second, what kind of promise was made and ratified that couldn't be changed? It was the promise that was made to Abram. I'm going to give you a place and a people. Okay? I'm going to give you a place and a people, and that all, all the world will be blessed through your seed. That's the promise. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. That's the promise that was made. It does not say, and to his offsprings. This, was where they, this is where they missed it. They thought, well, Abraham's our father, and we're his children, and we are the recipients of the promise. And, and Paul's like, no. It says offspring, not offsprings, referring not to many, but referring to one one offspring, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So they missed the plot because it was always pointing the promise to a person, which was Christ. 17, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, after the promise was made, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. Let me put that in different words for you. The law was not the reason why you're reconciled to God. Your ability to hold it up or put it in a place or make rules around it so that you adhere to it, was not the reason why God's presence was here. The reason why God came was because he promised to do it. It was previously ratified by God. And that would make the promise void. Why would that make the promise void? For if an inheritance comes by law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. And Paul says the same thing in Romans 4. If, if, uh, if, you, if you get something as a worker, it's counted as a wage, not as a gift. And so he's trying to make the same case with Jesus. The promise is something that you didn't work for. It's something you can't confine. Something that you can't contain. And we miss this. The focus of our faith is supposed to be in the person. The person of Christ. And this is particularly in the places where um, we, we seek assurance for the fact that we're in the faith. Or the, the assurance for the fact that we, that we understand the promise or the covenant. And um, I think that the story that Stephen is telling um, not, not just uh, rebukes the, the the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, but it's it's supposed to punch us right in our heart as well because that's exactly what happens. He says, the problem is you people are, are stiff-necked, you're uncircumcised in heart and ears, you resist the Holy Spirit just as your fathers did, so do you. I, I think the the place where our faith often goes, if I was like, well, how do, like, what, what does your faith look like? Well, how do you know that your faith is in God? Or how do you know that um, you know Jesus? And you might be tempted to, to point to places where you're doing something. I go to church. I know the Bible. I do. Mm, you fill, fill it in. That's not faith in God. That's faith in you. That's faith in your activity. And uh, those things were never given to us. Um, to point us towards fulfilling them they were always pointing to the bigger picture which is which is jesus that the person the relationship because um this is to wrap the whole thing up <laughs> the, the great promise of um the law was not that what you do will allow god to come the sacrifices was not this will appease um god's sin so that he can be near you um the purpose of the tabernacle was not a place for God to dwell permanently, so his presence would be there. His, his, his promise was always that I, I will come and my presence will be with you. And the greatest manifestation of that is, is Jesus himself. And the, the, um, we're tempted to stop the story right there. It's Emmanuel, God with us. And we're like, yeah, hallelujah, amen. But now he's in heaven. What are we going to do? Well, now it's God with us and in us. Because the Holy Spirit. You have you you carry, you are a carrier of the promise now, the, the story continues not just as in like well back in the day that was so great when Jesus was here. The, the Holy Spirit is is the tangible promise and that's um, what we'll get into next week. But um, I guess the, the the challenge this morning is to ask have you have you are you approaching a God in a way that you, you think you define him and you confine him to a place or a space or his responsiveness to you is about your faithfulness to him. And you, the, the point is to put all of that away <laughs> and experience what it is to, to just trust in Jesus as the sole means of, of the promise that God will be with us.